Warning! Today's story contains profanity, some graphic violence, and features positive portrayals of really bad cinema. Parents who choose to expose their children to this material should follow it with a frank discussion of the risks of independent filmmaking. Escape Pod 68 August 24, 2006 Today's story, Depth of Field, by Stephen Deadman. Hello, and welcome back to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. I'm leaving for Worldcon in about three hours, so I'm hoping to make this one quick. But I've got a couple of important comments about Escape Pod for this intro. I usually save those for a metacast, and I'm intending to do another one as soon as con season settles down. But sometimes the world doesn't wait. Okay, first, the advertising from the last two weeks. The feedback's been mixed. Most people who responded thought the ad style was unobtrusive, and it didn't bother them at all. We got one voicemail from someone who really couldn't stand the ad. She also didn't like the series being advertised. And a few comments expressing, not annoyance, but concern. I think Brian summed up several messages when he said, This may sound odd, but my main beef with the ads is that you read them. I would rather hear the network's canned ad. The common sentiment of most of those who didn't like the ads was that hearing my voice endorse something that I don't actually mean makes them uncomfortable. Mike said, If you told me that you saw the Invasion DVD and liked it, that would carry a lot of weight because I've grown to value your opinion. But if you run their ad and then later say you enjoyed Invasion, what am I to think? Maybe you're saying that because they're a sponsor. It blows my mind that so many of you were that interested in what I think, and I thank you for that. I did say it was an experiment, and I don't regret trying it, but to be honest, reading someone else's copy kind of felt a bit weird to me, too. They actually offered me a third week of those ads, and I turned them down because I told you guys it was a two-week trial. I don't want to be made a liar. I also turned down an offer to pitch a different series early in September. Even if I felt great about it, I think that's too close to the last one, and I don't want any of you to get the impression that we're moving away from a donation model and picking up a constant stream of media ads. It's pretty far from constant, for one thing, and while I can't say how much money was involved, I can say that I feel more secure relying on your support than their support. So I don't think we'll be doing the network style of advertising again anytime soon. Instead, one tiny nudge. I don't say it often anymore, but if you like the stories, and you can, please consider donating. If that's not your thing, you can still support us by telling your friends about us. Oh, and that second piece of news? We're raising our story rates from $50 to $100. This is just one of those the-timing-is-right things. We're getting more interest now from really significant authors in the field, and to keep pushing our quality even higher, we have to pay everyone the best rate we can. I want to announce this at Worldcon, but it's important that you guys hear it first, since you made it possible. I said we'd keep putting your donations back into the podcast, and that we'd raise our rates as we could. That's a promise I have to keep, to keep earning your support. Flash Fiction, however, is staying at $20. I'm not made of money, you know. So that's your mini-metacast, and... Hey, we have a story this week, too. Since I'm going to be in California when this airs, we have to do a Hollywood story. We offer Depth of Field by Stephen Dedman, with a protagonist you've probably heard of. Mr. Dedman is one of Australia's hottest science fiction authors. And no, I'm not referring to his photograph. 
He has four books out and dozens of short stories. He lives near Perth and has made it through many travels and many jobs, including used dinosaur salesman and manager of a science fiction bookshop, which seem almost but not quite redundant. The story is read for us by Dr. Jonathan Sully Dog Sullivan. He's our reviews editor, a doctor, a scientist, and a damn good writer himself. If you ever meet him, ask him why he's called Mr. Tor. The story's hilarious, to at least six people. So put on a comfy sweater. It's story time. Depth of Field, by Stephen Dedman. Ed was dreaming when the phone rang. A melange of movie images: schoolgirls and vampires, cowboys and lingerie, a line of dialogue from Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. A buxom blonde in g-string and tassels, strapped to an operating table. The ringing became incorporated into the dream for a few seconds as an alarm bell, before Ed opened his eyes, peered into the darkness, and fumbled under the bed for the receiver. Uh, yes, hello. Probably Bella. No one else rang at this time of night. No, Bella had died a few years ago. Ed considered the implications of this for a few seconds. Yes, hello, Edward D. Wood Jr. Who's speaking, please? Ed, it's Bill. There's been a sighting just a couple of miles from your place. I'll be around in a minute. Ah,、uh, Ed forced himself to think. Sighting. Oh God. Okay. Sighting. Flying saucer. Get dressed. Get gun. Okay, he repeated. See you soon. It had seemed like a good idea at the time. He thought, as he reached into his drawer for a bra. The government had been able to dismiss UFO reports since they had started some ten years before, but not the recent spate of abductions in Southern California. Ed knew of no hard evidence connecting the two phenomena, but once the link had been made, a growing number of Angelinos were coming to believe that Martians wanted California girls. Ed prided himself on an open mind. He knew that they might not be Martians. There might be thousands of planets. He yawned as he pulled his pants up over his garter belt and reached for his camera. One of the governor's advisers had recommended appointing a committee of science fiction writers to investigate the saucer sightings as a way of diverting the public, and the governor had agreed. However, as none of the selection committee were SF readers. Project Birdwatch was dominated by screenwriters, writer-directors, writer-director-producers, and the occasional typecast actor. Few of them were brilliant, but they knew one side of a television camera from the other, and at least none of them had been blacklisted. The novelists and short story writers who had joined Birdwatch had soon given up in disgust. Ed had signed up for the same reasons as most of the others: the possibility of publicity and the badly needed fifty dollars a month. Besides, seven pretty blonde women had been abducted, and someone was responsible. He was out the door a few seconds before Bill's battered Ford pulled up on the curb. "Come on, I want to get there before the reporters do, just in case." "What's the story?" asked Ed, yawning, as they careened through Hollywood like a low-budget James Dean. "Saucer, missing girl, little old lady phoned in." Super of an apartment block said she saw what looked like a man with a big head standing in a column of violet light. That's all I know. Ours not to question why. Do you think they're real? Any of them? Bill shrugged. Search me. 
I guess somewhere between 9 out of 10 and maybe 99 out of 100 are mistakes. Fakes, hysteria, the rest, I don't know. You don't still think it's just a publicity stunt. The first one I did. Castle might have done it if he had thought of it first. The girl had done a couple of bit parts. She probably would have done it for a few bucks. But that was a year ago now, and there's still no sign of her. Even her parents say they haven't seen her. And the cops are still looking, they say. And six girls have disappeared since. If it was a stunt, it's gone too far. Why? You sound sort of blue, Ed. You know how it is, Ed replied. The two men had, between them, produced and directed Lugosi's last four films, and that created a bond like few others. I can't raise the money to get revenge of the dead developed. I got just enough out of the bride and the beast to pay off some debts. You pay debts? Bill's tone was incredulous. He glanced at Ed, taking his eyes off the road for a few perilous seconds. I didn't have a choice, Ed grumbled. You'll find another backer, Bill reassured him. You always have before. Girls who want to be actresses, men who want to be producers, make a quick buck in the movie business. What was it P.T. Barnum used to say? There's a sucker born every minute, and another to take him. You and I are the takers. The important thing is, the movies get made, right? Without studio interference? Right, said Ed. And there are movies the studios could have never made, right? Right, said Ed. So some of them don't make a profit. So some of the investors don't get their money back. And some of the... Jesus, what the fuck is that? That was a dome on a tripod, the size of a house trailer, parked in the road outside an apartment block. As the two men watched in disbelief, they saw a humanoid figure emerge from the building, an unconscious woman cradled in his arms. The figure was dressed in a pale gray coverall, boots, gloves, and a helmet with large dark eye holes and a small mouth. Either that, or he was gray-skinned and, apart from a belt, naked. The woman was dressed in a thin shift. The two filmmakers were out of the car in an instant, Ed brandishing a 16mm camera, Bill reaching for the Liberator pistol in his pocket. The abductor halted when he saw the car, and then began stumbling more quickly towards the dome. A door irised on the dome's far side, and a ramp slid down to the pavement. Hey you! snapped Bill. Captain Video! Freeze! Now! Ed had always admired Bill's economy with dialogue, but was less sure of his marksmanship. You can't shoot him! Not at this range! You'll hit the girl! Bill snorted, then reconsidered. Okay, drop the girl and reach for the stars! The figure glanced at them and stumbled forward even more quickly. Bill aimed low and fired, hitting him just below the knee. The figure dropped the girl and began hopping towards the ramp. Shoot him again! Ed didn't take his eye from the camera eyepiece. With this thing? It's a single-shot job. Takes longer to reload than it did to make. You want to stop him? You go after him. Ed considered this. Do you think the girl's okay? The would-be abductor collapsed onto the ramp, which began retracting into the dome. Bill rushed cautiously toward the structure, frequently glancing towards the camera as if to make sure that his face was visible, and reached the nearest tripod leg just as it lifted clear of the ground. He stepped away, and the legs retracted into the dome as the craft gained altitude. Suddenly, when it was barely clear of the roofs of the surrounding buildings, there was an explosion of violet light. Bill clapped his hands over his eyes and hit the ground, Ed yelling behind him. The film was so murky as to be unwatchable. 
even by the standards of the company assembled. It's not just the low light, explained the photo lab technician as the audience grumbled. It was the radiation. Even the unexposed film in the can's been fogged. Fortunately, it wasn't a lethal dose, but Dr. Rook wants the two of you to report to him for a checkup every day until he's sure. And Dr. Holmes is doing tests on the blood recovered from the sidewalk. What color blood? The technician looked at the general sitting beside him, who nodded. Red, he said. Human? We don't know yet, but it's passed all the tests so far. Are you sure it was the monster they shot? Someone asked. Not the girl? Sure, I'm sure, snapped Bill. Ed looked the girl over and there wasn't a scratch on her. That seems to be correct, said the general. He sighed and hit the light switch, looking around the room. He hated asking the graveyard shift of Project Birdwatch, better known to the committee as the Late 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 Show, for opinions, but there was always the chance that one of them might have an idea that was crazy enough to interest the scientists. He was just glad that they had managed to dump that Ackerman maniac. The prospect of reading one more report written in his mind-wrenching style had led to threats of a mutiny among his secretarial pool. Are there any questions? Yeah, said one director-producer. How big did you guys say this monster was? About six foot, I guess, replied Bill. Maybe two hundred pounds. Bigger than me. Smaller than the Swedish angel. He glanced around the room and noticed a lanky actor sprawled in the back row of the theater. Could you stand, please? The actor complied. Maybe a little shorter than you. How tall is that? Six four, replied the actor. Thank you. Six two or three, then. Two arms, two legs, two eyes, six foot tall, bleeds red, asked a writer best known for transposing the head of a fly onto the body of an overconfident scientist. That's about the size of it. Sounds human to me. That's what we think, agreed the general. So, we can all guess where it comes from, right? The question is, why are they kidnapping our women? Maybe they want to cause a panic, suggested Ed. General, volunteered the actor. If the Russians had a craft like this, wouldn't they just bomb us? The general turned on him and looked down his clipboard for the tall man's resume. Listen, Private, killing gill men and giant spiders in the B-movies doesn't make you an expert in strategy. Does anybody else have any questions? Yes, said Ed. What do we know about the girl? What? Ed shrugged. I don't know about the rest of you, but if I'd come all this way whether it's from Mars or Moscow, to kidnap a girl? I think I'd be picky. Now, I noticed she was blonde and pretty, but do we know any more than that? The general didn't reply. She must have a name, at least, said Bill. And I know those apartments. Most of those girls living there are young, single, and waiting for their break into showbiz. So, has she done any movies? Would you like her phone number, too? asked the general, heavily. Yes, said Ed. I'd like to be sure she's okay. Do you really think they'll be back? She asked nervously. There must be lots of other girls in Hollywood. Wouldn't it be safer if they went after someone else? Ed smiled. Maybe, April. Do you mind if I call you April? But maybe that's how they expect us to think. If we treat this as the last place they'd want to come to, it may be exactly where they will come. They may have had special reasons for choosing you, too some special quality you have. I know if I'd come all the way from Mars looking for a girl, I wouldn't settle for just anyone. Say, 
Is that sweater Angora? Yes. Why? Ed smiled more broadly. It's just a theory I have. These aliens may be a lot more like us than most people think, and that may help me outsmart them. April looked at him dubiously. Are you with the FBI? No. No, I'm a movie director, and Project uh, Governor Brown hired me because I've done so much research into flying saucers. Have you seen Plan 9 from Outer Space? She shook her head. Pity. Do you have a gun? He nodded, showing her the Colt police revolver in his pocket. Bella Lugosi gave this to me, he said, fondly, deciding not to mention that the aging actor had bought it to protect himself from Boris Karloff, who he was convinced was trying to kill him. I used to be a Marine. You couldn't ask for a better bodyguard. There's no need to worry. I'll sleep on the couch. You won't even know I'm here. Ed! Ed, wake up! Huh? Ed blinked and looked around the tiny bedroom, slowly remembering where he was. What's up? April crept over to the window as he sat up in bed and woke up. For some reason, there were dots floating around in his vision, as though he were seeing stars. There's something down on the street. A flash of purple light woke me and... and... Ed, feeling very cold despite the mild weather, tiptoed over to the window. The dome looked very like the one he had seen a week before, as did the big-headed figure that walked down the ramp. I'm going to give you a phone number to call, he said softly. Call them before you call the police, okay? What are you going to do? Get dressed to start with, he thought. I'm going down there. He grabbed his jacket, his shirt, his revolver, his address book, and his bra. It didn't say anything last time it was here, did it? No. Well, if it doesn't understand English, maybe it'll understand lead. He finished dressing, then scrawled down the phone number for Bill, or One Shot, as the rest of Project Birdwatch had taken to calling him. Wait here for me. She closed the door behind him. He heard her lock it and wedge it shut with a chair. Ed crept down the stairs, revolver in hand, until he saw the gray figure a flight below. Stop or I'll shoot! The figure turned to stare at him, then slowly held up his empty hands. You again. Thought we wouldn't be expecting you, huh? Well, you can just stay there until the cops get here. You got a whole lot of explaining to do. Look, said the figure. This isn't what you think. For one thing, I'm not from another planet, and that isn't a spaceship. Matter of fact, I'm from California myself. Then why the flying saucer? It's a time machine. I'm from the future. And why are you stealing our women? Stealing? said the figure, innocently. Yes, I, I suppose it could look like that. But that's just because the women don't want to come back, and, and they have that right. But I'm not after any trouble with the natives, my friend. All the women we come back here for have been carefully vetted. We make sure they're single and are going to die childless before we take them. The last thing we want to do is change the future by preventing somebody from being born. But if we made a mistake, just say so and I'll go away again. Hold on a second, said Ed. What do you mean, they don't want to come back? And leave show business, said the figure. Sorry, I can't give away details of the future. I may have told you too much already. Let's just say that it's a lot more comfortable than the present, especially for women. For one thing, we don't make them wear the ridiculous clothes you do now. 
Ed bristled at that. What ridiculous clothes? High heels, girdles, that sort of shit. Don't get me wrong, it's better than some of the things that get done to them in the 80s and 90s. You wouldn't want to see that unless you're a horror movie buff. Horror movies? said Ed. I make horror movies. Hey, me too. What's your name? I did film history in college. Edward D. Wood, Jr. I've only made a few films so far, but I'm... Ed Wood? The Ed Wood? Plan 9 from Outer Space? Glenn or Glenda? Bride of the Monster? Orgy? No, no, you haven't made that one yet. I is that you? You've heard of me? Heard of you? Everybody's heard of you. They made movies about you. You're an inspiration to all independent filmmakers. And you and Hirsch... Excuse me. You're one of my three biggest personal heroes. Sorry, I, I can't name the others. Ed looked at him dubiously. The man sounded sincere enough, but with a mask on, it was hard to be sure. Can you take off that helmet? Sorry, no. Air filters. You wouldn't believe the crud that's in the air around here. My God, Ed Wood, in the flesh, face to... Well, face to mask. I'm famous? I can promise you, they'll be showing your movies to film history students well into the next century, said the figure. And like I said, I make horror movies myself. That's actually why I'm here. Why are you here? I guess you could call me a talent scout, he said. Look, Ed, can I call you Ed? I think it's safe to tell you that there are some things in the future that you wouldn't like. The movie business is, well... There's almost no hope for independence like you and me anymore. The drive-ins are gone, and movies that cost less than a hundred million find it almost impossible to get seen. A hundred million? Okay, there's been a shitload of inflation. Even hollow... Sorry. Television drama now costs a million or more per hour, and some of the ads cost a hell of a lot more than that. But most of it is star salaries and copyrights. Guess how much it costs to get Orson Welles in my time, or Jack Nick... Orson Welles is still alive? Not exactly. We use a... Look, it's too technical to explain, but believe me, it costs millions. And even if you can make a cheap picture, using live actors and no special effects, it costs tens of millions to promote it and get it into the cinemas. And none of the studios want to take risks. Everything is bland. Everything is safe. Horror? Forget it. You can still make a film without the studios, but... It won't have a lot of the fancy stuff that people expect. And if it hasn't got stars and special effects, you'll never get it into the cinema without spending millions to advertise it, even if it's something really special. What about backers? Don't people want to be stars anymore? Nope. Almost none of them, anyway. Not even women? The figure shook his head. They think it's hard work, which, I'll grant you, it is still. And trivial, which is in the eye of the beholder and degrading, which I take exception to. And even the ones who want to act don't want to make horror movies. They say they're all gore and no plot and that they're anti-women. Huh. We employ more women than any other genre except, well, all but one. But women don't need money anymore and they don't have to be secretaries or file clerks or waitresses anymore. Nobody does, I grant you. Almost none of those boring jobs exist. Women got it made in my world. I can't try to explain our system to you, but basically, the easiest way for us to find a good-looking young blonde who speaks American English and can act a little and wants to be in movies and doesn't contain enough silica... uh... has a style of beauty that is in vogue where I come from, is to hire a time machine and recruit one here." He shrugged. 
Look, Ed, we obviously have a lot in common. But cops in your time? Well, they just won't understand. They'll probably throw me in one of your jails or something, maybe even the electric chair. You wouldn't want to do that to a kindred spirit, would you? A and if your military gets my machine, well, that could cause all sorts of paradoxes. Now, if the girl I came here for is someone special, a lady friend of yours, and her archivists have screwed up, okay, I'll just go and promise to leave her alone in the future. What do you say? The revolver wavered slightly. Ah, oh, come on, Ed. They'll be here any minute. Ed stared at him, then sighed and pocketed his gun. The time traveler waved and hurtled down the stairs. I'll dedicate my next movie to you, he promised. Thank you. Thank you. The director looked through the viewfinder at the blonde and nodded. Okay. He handed an old-fashioned clapperboard to the time traveler and yelled, Lights! The girl smiled nervously at the robot. She hadn't been shown much of the script apart from a few of her own scenes and knew only that it was a political film about a robotic lumberjack who'd lost his raison d'être now that the last remnants of the Amazon rainforest had been cleared. What interested her more was that only one week remained before she could apply for a residency permit. The government didn't grant refugee status to anachronisms, no matter how oppressive or horrific their home when. Camera! Speed! yelled the holocam operator, zooming in on her smile, which had become less nervous and a little more real. Real wood! yelled the time traveler, who served as clapper loader between jaunts. Scene 86, take one. Action! The girl smiled even more broadly and delivered her line. The robot extruded two powerful cables which grabbed the girl and held her motionless. Then eight vibrating blades snapped out of their sheaths and into her flesh. The sound of the blades didn't quite cover her screams. Cut! yelled the director. And print! I want blood and guts all over the stage, all over the robot. Where are those goddamn cattle mutilators? And get Miss 1958 here into the regenerator. We'll need her again next Wednesday. He grinned. Let's see the studios do that with computer animation. The all-male crew laughed dutifully. And move it! There are people waiting to see this picture. And cut! That was perfect! A little bit of Ed Wood humor there, if you missed it. I'm going to keep this back end short, because the time draws nigh for catching my flight. Also, except for the advertising talk, we got very little feedback on last week's story, to my surprise. Brian, whom I also quoted in the intro, said he was betting we would take some heat for the brutality of the story, especially the violence inflicted on the female character. He wasn't complaining himself, he thought it was a powerful story. He just thought other people would complain. But no one did, so maybe our story warnings are working. The only other comment was Wes, who said in the comments thread, I enjoyed this story. It was strange, interesting, and very unique. Kind of like Harry Potter on crack. Lots and lots of crack. Thanks, Wes. We do like to try new things, although crack hasn't been among them. More to the point, I try to make sure that Escape Pod isn't just one funny story following another funny story all the time. Funny's good, I like funny, but much of the real power of science fiction is its ability to shake things up, and sometimes to shock you into thinking things you wouldn't otherwise. And we have had requests for more literary sorts of stories, too. And we're good with that. 
As our guidelines say, as long as it has strong pacing, characters, and action, it's okay for it to be beautiful, too. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated, who have a party suite at Worldcon, and is distributed on a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No-Derivatives license. Did I mention parties? All of the rights are reserved by our authors, some of whom will be at our party. Also check out our horror podcast, Pseudopod, at pseudopod.org. You can ask me about it if you run into me at a party. Our music is by permission of Dai Kaiju. There won't be a Worldcon, but will be a DragonCon. That's next week. And I may see you there, too. That was our show for this week. In the immortal words of Dennis Miller, That's the news, and I am out of here! <laughs>